Welcome to Therapeutic Perspective. My name is Sarah Dynan, and I will be your host. Each episode, our goal is to educate clinicians on current issues presented in society and feature specialists that can help us to navigate these issues. As a licensed professional counselor in private practice in Northeast Pennsylvania, with over a decade in the field, I am always wanting to learn more to better serve my clients. Especially as things in society evolve and change, I believe we need better access to current information. Therapeutic Perspective is a continuing education provider, so stay tuned to the end of the show to hear how you can obtain NBCC continuing education credit hours for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to episode 20 of Therapeutic Perspective. I am your host, Sarah Dynan, and today we are going to talk about the influence of diet culture and weight stigma on mental health. When we reflect on our culture's obsession with diets, I think all of us at least have one or more diet trends that quickly come to mind. For me, I think of Atkins, the cabbage soup diet, the bone broth diet, Weight Watchers, and all of those reflect a culture that potentially has a way of making us feel guilty for eating certain things or for not exercising a certain amount. While some may have found some great success with these tactics, we also need to explore the impact that this could have on an individual psyche. And we want to understand how to better create a body positive environment within our counseling sessions. So today I have one of the best experts that I have ever spoken to. Her name is Amber Rice. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's a facilitator, educator, speaker, writer, and an activist. She has been a mental health provider for over 25 years with her roots in social work and nonprofit community-based services. Her areas of specialty include trauma, disordered eating, body shame, and weight biases, and her Seattle-based private practice supports clients from around the world. Her counseling framework is highly relational and informed by social justice, EDMR, internal family systems, and radical compassion models. Amber is an AAMFT-approved clinical supervisor, and she provides clinical supervision, education, and training to other therapists on topics including countertransference, body politics, anti-fat biases, and weight biases in the helping professional fields. So without further ado, here is the episode with me and Amber Rice. I hope you guys enjoy, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. All right. And so without further ado, welcome to the show, Amber. Oh, thanks, Sarah. I'm super, super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you into your specialty? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, I fit the, I fit the, the trope about therapists that we go, we become therapists because we're, we're really working to heal our own, our own stuff. And this is absolutely how I how I came into you know body and fat liberation and fat acceptance and learning how to work with other people with body shame and with eating disorders because that was the big missing piece of my own story and the thing that was preventing me my body shame and the sense that my body and being in a large body and being a fat woman was some indication of my moral failure, of my professional failure, that it indicated to the world that I had like unresolved issues that I hadn't like worked through in consciousness. And it really prevented me from taking up more like literal space in the professional community. I found myself 
you know, feeling like I didn't, I didn't belong um, amongst professionals and I, and I didn't have something to say because there was these like ideas of how people saw me and just devalued me because of the size of my body. And so when I started hearing about these ideas of body trust and health at every size and intuitive eating, it was like a really central sort of missing puzzle piece that sort of brought all of these other areas of my clinical work, my personal work, my own growth process. It was like the thing that was missing. It was the named missing piece that brought all my trauma work in and all my recovery work and, and helped me understand that my body is not an indication of my worthiness at all. In fact, my body's like the least interesting thing about me, quite frankly. So it's, it's a lot of like your own experiences and yeah. what you felt even like as a professional. And it was some of these theories that kind of inspired you to see things a little bit differently. And it sounds like feel a little bit more comfortable with being you. Yes. And also feeling like I had um, the credit and the credibility needed to be able to take up space and that I didn't have to worry. I mean, there's always going to be trolls out there who are going to judge mm -hmm. people in large bodies and size all, all different. There's all different types of stigma out there and discrimination and marginalization going on. And, you know, weight discrimination and weight stigma is out there in the clinical world and in the world in general. So that still exists, but it ha I was able to release that for myself. I see. I see. Can yeah. you describe to us kind of like that aha moment for you? Like how long yeah. ago was it? And what, like, was it, what was that thing that was just like, I got it. Yeah. So, um, what introduced me to the work and to the principles of the work that I now, um, provide, um, is a, a podcast. <laughs> so podcasts are amazing. <laughs> um, a podcast called the food psych podcast by Christy Harrison. And, um, she is an anti-diet dietitian and she interviews various specialists and individuals and, um, folks with lived experience who are addressing fat liberation and body politics and weight stigma. And I, I got recommended, I don't even know who recommended or how I, how, but I remember hearing, oh, that sounds interesting. Like a, a, a psychology podcast related to food. That's, I have issues with that. So I'm going to listen to that. And, and I was, as I was listening, I was like, what? Like, like it felt like she was whispering sweet nothings into my ear and it all felt a little too good to be true, but something about it deeply, deeply resonated. And specifically what really was hard to accept as true that I really wrestled with, but I knew it resounded um, because of my work in trauma, because I'm an EMDR therapist and have a lot of background working with folks um, who are in bodies um, that they blame for their, that they, they have a lot of internalized blame and shame around it. And when I'm looking at these folks, I'm able to say, no, 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 no. Like there's this whole system of oppression operating on you. This isn't your fault. Like you're struggling with this. Of course, what would we expect other than this for this to be hard and, and don't internalize that as being some symptom of your failure, but, uh, but a result of how hard the world is and how much uh, marginalization, oppression, trauma, these things affect you and impact you. And there isn't a lot of support. 
And what Christy Harrison and the larger Health at Every Size and Intuitive Eating and Body Trust community see is that you know, the size and shape of our bodies is not something that we have control over, that we like to think we do, <laughs> um, and we want to control the shape and size of our bodies, but bodies are diverse and have always been diverse. There's been fat people through history, um, and our, our desire to shrink the size of our bodies is out of a desire to gain the privilege that comes along with thinness and to escape the, the consequences of weight stigma and, and body shaming that happens. And, and that I, there was this like release of responsibility in that moment where I went, okay, tell me more about that because I have been blaming myself for my entire life that I'm, that I'm like a thin person trapped in a large body and that I just, there's like something out there that I'm not doing to get me quote healthy and attractive and worthy of respect, this hustle for worthiness. And so that was what got me to lean in, start reading books, mm -hmm. go to um, my first like uh, workshop that I went to was with Be Nourished in Portland. And I, I'm up in Seattle area. So it was easy for me to go to a weekend workshop there, and it was called, um, I think it was called Exploring Body Trust. And that weekend, it was just like, I mean, light bulbs, light bulbs, light bulbs, awarenesses, awarenesses, awarenesses. And it started my access to community, to a community of other people who are doing this work, who are shifting the mindset that diet culture has taught us about ourselves. And when we talk about, for our listeners, like diet culture and body trust, can you give us some definitions yes. of those so that we can all be on the same yeah. page? So diet culture is essentially, you know, we have been raised and you know, um, we're just seeped in a, a, a cultural messaging about bodies and about food and what foods are okay, what foods are not okay. Um, and this changes all the time, that um, there's like a very strict idea of how we should be eating, when we should be eating, how much that we are eating, and it's all externalized. It's externalized messages from professionals or parents or gym teachers or Susan over in marketing who tells you mm -hmm. about her whatever diet. And, and we, we learn to not trust our own bodies to give us information about what our bodies need and want. And, and we are born innately connected. I mean, if you think of an infant, infants are very innately connected to when they're hungry and when they're not, they'll push away from the bottle or from the breast when they're hungry or when they're not, no longer hungry and they'll let us know when they are. And at some point along the way, there are some food rules and food policing and ideas about what's healthy and unhealthy that are taught to us at a very early age by very well-meaning adults and, and people mm -hmm. in our lives who, who have also gotten all the same messaging. So they're very fearful about wanting their kids to be happy and healthy. Um, and they don't want their kid to be the fat kid at school because weight stigma starts very young. And so there's this protective component that happens at a very young age by doctors and everyone else um, where we stop, we stop trusting kids' bodies. We stop trusting their inherent hunger cues, their satiety cues. We don't trust their, their cravings. We don't trust 
their interests around food. We tell them to clean their plate. We tell them that they can't have this until this is done. And there's just a lot of policing and fear around food that starts really young. And I mean, kids are, I mean, I, I have a client who recently told me that her, her kind of early memory, memories of what I ask my clients is, when did you start to mistrust your hunger? When did you get disconnected okay. from your hunger? And she said, I, I have a memory of my mom telling me as a kid, like, you're not hungry, you're not hungry, as an attempt to like curb her daughter's natural cues around food and hunger. And so we developed this dieting mind that gets obsessed with what's okay, it's very fear-based, it's full of anxiety. We also tend to be very worried about our health um, and health feels like something that we're personally responsible for and that we have to do well or we're not performing for society. Um, and health is like fraught with all this access issues with healthcare. So all this gets combined into diet culture along with like the messages from media about what bodies are good and what bodies are worthy of respect, what bodies mm -hmm. are worthy of attention, of dignity, what bodies are desirable. And this, you know, being fat or thinness is just one marker for worthiness on that body hierarchy. Um, so, you know, there's obviously messages about out there about, you know, race and gender and sexual orientation and body size and beauty are another kind of one of the one of the unnamed spaces of discrimination that a lot of us haven't really inspected and isn't really protected in in corporate world and so it's you know being in a fat body um, or being quote unattractive by the so-called standards are still places where lots of discrimination are happening and there's no real legal legal recourse for a lot of folks so this is what we call diet culture. We have been embedded in it. We've been swimming in it. We don't even know. It's like the water we swim in. We don't even know that it exists until we start looking at it, interrogating it. Um, so that's how I define body, uh, you know, diet culture um, and the dieting mind that, that we've internalized these messages and don't like, that's just true, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think like you kind of hit on there, it's also like generational, like this has yes. been getting passed down and passed yes. down. So it's, it's kind of hard to cut through it and see it for what it really is. And it sounds like, you know, in being in, in exploring the diet culture, there's a lot of ways that maybe we as therapists have been, you know, mistreating our clients unknowingly. Absolutely, mm -hmm. we're colluding with it. And it's doing a lot can of you, work. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Some of the errors that you see in clinicians? <sighs> so, I mean, I think the first error is just not knowing that this exists, right? And, and what we just mm -hmm. named there. And not getting curious about why, where did diet culture come from? And how very, you know, I remember that when I first started learning this, um, some of my teachers told me, and I started hearing that diet culture is rooted in racism and white, white supremacy. And I was like, what helped me track that back? Because I, I, that's probably true, but I don't quite understand that. Um, and so a book that I read called, Sabrina, uh, called Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings is a fantastic book to start unpacking how, you know, body hierarchies and the fear of large bodies and, you know, calling certain foods you know, bad because that's what people of color were eating at the time. And there's like 
colonial pure foods. We've just been repeating this. Um, whiteness has just been repeating this, and and it's doing a it's done harm. It's been tremendously harmful, and there's all this intergenerational trauma. Um, for folks who are in um, black and brown bodies and in marginalized identities and their fatness and the intersection of being fat and being black, fat and being a person of color, the harm that's done to them is, I mean, I have a lot of unearned privilege because of my whiteness. I'm protected a lot by in diet culture because I'm not a person of color. And so Sabrina Strings does a great job of tracking this back. And this is something that we're not at all aware of and there's a lot of like harm that happens in the eating disorder community specifically because when we think of eating disorder clients, what do we think of? We think of like thin white women. Anorexia, yeah, bulimia, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And most of the people who are treating those folks are thin white women. Mm -hmm. And when you're a person of color who understands this history and that, the, the, that white women have been perpetuating this all along through history, it's really hard for these folks to access safe treatment without being harmed with all kinds of microaggressions um, along the way. So that's just one piece of why this is so important that we start understanding this. It's a lot to take in, but that book, Sabrina Strings, is a great, um, a great place to start and listening, looking for her. She's kind of all over the place so you can read articles or watch her on YouTube. So educating ourselves about diet culture, where it comes from, how it's rooted in racism and whiteness, um, and the harm that we can do specifically to people who are in more marginalized identities is a big one. Yeah, so, so for us as therapists, and I'll definitely post in the, on, in the show notes and on our website the link to Sabrina String's book. So we can kind of get this base, and this it's almost like really eye-opening. Like, I feel like, Amber, you're giving me a pair of glasses to, like, see yes. things more clearly. Um, because before, I think it's, like, kind of blurry and trying to understand it because, like, it's so ingrained in us. Yes. Yes. What are some of the things that we, as therapists, that you hear, of the, like, with your clients coming to you and knowing that you have a modality that is body positive, you follow body trust modality. What are some of the things that you hear from some of your clients that say, oh, my last therapist, and it was actually said this, and it was really harmful to them. What are some of those things that you've heard? Yeah. So some of the things that, um, that we do is in this, and I'm, I am guilty of this 100%. I've done a lot of harm. Um, historically in my practice until I started becoming aware of this. And once we know better, we can do better, right? Um, but one of the things that often happens is that we collude with clients' weight loss goals. Um, and we even will make weight loss a goal in our practices um, because we see that as linked with confidence and self-esteem. And clients will often say, I feel so much better when, I, when I'm thinner. And you know, what I say to that is, uh, of course you do, because you have now have access and privilege that thinness gives you. And so what we can do as clinicians is we can help our clients unpack and unlink um, what feels good about being thin is not about being thin. It's about no longer being impacted by weight stigma and body shame. And so we can make our goals around, you know, looking at what are the things that you, what are the privileges 
that you are no longer feeling you have access to, which are real or imagined, um, mm -hmm. that, that you are wanting to have again that you can't have in your body, um, in the body that you have right now. And really helping them start to cope with the fact that there is body shame, that body stigma is out there, weight stigma is out there as a form of discrimination and coming to terms with that, having, there's almost like a, a grief process associated with that and educating our clients about how their, their weight and their, the shape of their body is something that is not something they can control. And this is, again, it brings up a lot of grief and a lot of anger, you know, mm -hmm. when we, when we have clients who are coming in and um, still sort of straddling that fence between, oh, I kind of want to try this health at every size intuitive eating thing because I've been dieting for years and years and years and I've been weight cycling and, um, and I'm sick of that. I want to get free of that. And I'm afraid of gaining weight. Like that's really scary for a lot of folks. It's, I mean, of course it is. So helping them start to see that there's a grief process in letting go of the fantasy of the dream of, of being thin and having all the access and privilege that thin brings with it and, and learning how to develop some resilience around dealing with the weight stigma and weight shame that, that is out there. So just by signing on with our clients' weight loss goals, we're actually doing harm because we're, we, are, we are knowingly re-entering them into this cycle of dieting, yeah. dieting, dieting. And we know, well, the research is pretty clear <laughs> that diets don't work, that mm -hmm. intentional weight loss does not work. 95% um, of people who lose weight gain it back and they tend to gain back more. Um, and the impacts of weight cycling and the shame of failing the diet and thinking I'm the failure as opposed to saying the diet is the problem, these are really significant. Like what we know are some of the health outcomes, like the poor health outcomes associated with weight really aren't, we, we, it's hard to tease out what those health outcomes are really, um, if it's the weight that's causing that, there's not a causational link there, but there's a lot of truth to the idea that weight cycling, we know that weight cycling impacts metabolism and health. And we also know that shame is a really huge, uh, it, having shame and feeling, you know, um, negatively about oneself is a huge impact on health. So, so when we ask, when we collude with clients weight goals as a, as a therapeutic goal, we're really colluding with this really harmful model that we know doesn't work and creates more harm. So that's, and those are, yeah. Help. yeah. And I like that first question that it sounds like you ask when, if you have a client who starts saying, okay, I want to lose X amount of weight. It's almost like you, you dive in there a little bit deeper to ask, well, what is it that you feel like you would gain out of losing this weight? What kind of privilege, what kind of access do you feel like you would gain out of this? And then trying to talk with them about other ways to have that access without it necessarily being associated with weight. Is that accurate? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity and nuance to this because, um, for, for a lot of folks, you know, they're the diet or the eating disorder, or, you know, the pursuit of weight loss is kind of the only thing that they have hope, that gives them hope. Um, being in our bodies is traumatic. Like just having a body um, and being a human on the planet is a trauma, especially if you are in any sort of a marginalized identity. And 
And so for a lot of folks, not being able to control um, the safety that, that, they, that they have or don't have in their bodies. Um, diets and our, our eating disorders are a way of coping. Um, it's a way to kind of get outside of our bodies because to be in, attuned and inhabit our bodies is really, really painful and it doesn't feel safe in there. And so to engage in disordered eating, to be on a diet, these are all forms of coping and resilience that I, I don't want to yank away from somebody. It's not my agenda when somebody comes mm -hmm. in to like get them to not be eating disordered or get them off of their weight loss plan because I see that as something that they're using as a means of coping. And uh, I think it's really important that we give clients autonomy around this. So mm -hmm. I, I market my, you know, I let clients know when I'm working, when they're asking to work with me, I let them know about my model. Um, and most people come to me at this point because they know that this, they're, they're, they're ready to cross over that fence. That <laughs> um, this is kind of a common, um, that we can get an agenda to like get everyone off their diets and that can be pretty harmful in and of itself. Yes. So when people do come in and we start unpacking, let's get clearer about, you know, in this ideal world where you're in a thin body, what do you see yourself doing that you're not able to do now? What do you see yourself being able to access and do with with your body and in your body that you're not able to do now that that being um, at a certain weight isn't allowing for? And so we can kind of do a, di a, a deeper dive around um, around whether or not the weight is actually the issue or the fear of what comes along with weight shaming and weight stigma and anti-fat bias. I get what you're saying. So it's yeah. kind of starting with that question and it's not necessarily, hey, we're going to pull you off and pull you away from this diet culture, but getting to kind of understand them a little bit further, doing that deep dive into yeah. it and exploring, is this really a weight issue or is it a fear-based issue that's driving this desire? Yeah. yeah. Naming diet culture as the culprit and not our bodies. Yes. That's a big part of where to start is like, I let them know your body is not the problem. I know it feels like the problem and I know it's been the source of all of your victrol and for so long. And it's the thing that, but your body's not the problem. Weight stigma, anti-fat bias and diet culture is the problem. And let's start seeing how that's operating and, and where you picked up those messages and developing some resiliency and community around being able to live in the body that you're in, in this pretty violent culture. I really feel like that is what I want the big takeaway for yes. our listeners to be is your body is not the problem. Yes. It's the diet culture. Like, yes. I want you guys to rewind that and listen to it again. It's not the body. That's the problem. It's the that's diet right. culture. That's right. That's huge. That's yes. huge. And I, I want to kind of go into like your modality. Okay. And what drives people to, to reach out to you? Explain to us a little bit about your modality and what that looks like. So I um, come from a trauma background, um, and um, which is a, a great base to come into this work with because, again, a lot of why people develop eating disorder patterns or why they um, – you're dealing with your relationship with your body um, and relationships – and period, whether it's with another person or with our bodies, are, have a lot of trauma in them. So we're teaching people how to be in relationship with their body. And I usually like 
phrase it, like you're gonna be in couples therapy with your body. Let's talk about the history of your relationship with your body and how you want to be with your body, what kind of relationship you want to cultivate with your body. And so having a trauma background, having couples therapy backgrounds, you know, like any modality we learn as a marriage and family therapist is useful in, in, really, in developing a loving, compassionate, joyful, pleasurable, fun relationships with our bodies and doing all the healing work for what we had to do to survive for so long. But the main, the main thing I was trained in was um, an approach called body trust um, that was developed by Hillary Canavy and Dana Sturdivant out of, out of Portland. Um, their, their program is called Be Nourished, and they have a certification program there to become a body trust provider. Um, so I went through that training process, and I've done a lot of work with Be Nourished. And what body trust is, com is comprised of is um, the principles of health at every size, intuitive eating. They use a lot of social justice uh, approaches, radical self-compassion models, um, a lot of uh, feminist and narrative postmodern approaches in terms of externalizing the problem and naming the system of oppressions that are operating. Um, and so these, these models all kind of come together um, when I work with, with clients in my practice. I see, I see. And so I like how you said there's a lot of clients that already have some knowledge about your approach. Yeah. Um, maybe they've done a Google search, but it's obviously to something on your website as well. And I'll post the link for um, the training that you be would nourished. gone yeah. to. So that, yeah. be nourished so that our listeners, if they want to also be trained, they can also take a look at that to help yes. further educate themselves. Yes. When you look at other effective treatment treatment modalities, you know, it sounds like we have a lot of these skills and tools within us, especially if we are skilled in um, marriage and family counseling, if we're skilled in trauma therapy, a lot of these things kind of come together in the body trust approach. Absolutely. So I, yeah. And I think that's good for us therapists to know you're, you're not starting off at this complete blank slate. And I think we all have some knowledge about how the media influences our, our relationship with our body and how the media impacts how we feel. Yes. Can you talk to us a little bit about intuitive eating and what mm -hmm. that looks like? Yeah. So a, a big component of, of addressing um, diet culture and how it's impacted us and external, like really looking at how we've internalized or are perpetuating anti-fat bias um, is looking at, I mean, the, the only way we can come to, to peace with our bodies is if we stop trying to control the shape and size of them. <laughs> and and yeah. you know that in a relationship with anyone, trying to control who they are and how they show up in the world doesn't develop intimacy and compassion. It's like not, it's like a, you know, one of the one of the things that under undermines closeness in a relationship. So, for in order for us to like come into a radical, compassionate, loving, joyful relationship with ourselves, we have to we have to let go of controlling the size and shape of our bodies. And in order for us to do that, we have to let go of all those food rules that we are taught mm -hmm. all along the way. And so, intuitive eating really looks at this idea that our bodies have always. No, human beings, we can trust our body's hunger cues. We know how to check inside and feel whether or not something is feeling good inside of our bodies. 
when we're hungry and when we are not. And for those of us who've done a lot of disordered eating, the hunger cues can get kind of, you know, the wiring around that can get cut off and be challenging to reconnect over time when you've dieted for 25 years or however long it is. Learning to feel hungry, again, is a whole thing that might require a lot of support. Um, but we don't trust we don't trust our bodies. Like we'll say things like, oh, I can't have that type of food in my house or I'll go crazy, you know, or we will literally like not go to weddings. I have so many clients over the years who've told me like, I don't go to birthday parties. I didn't go to my sister's baby shower. I didn't go to my, my friend's wedding because I knew they'd have food there. And I, I was, I was on a diet. Um, and so there's so many things that we don't trust our bodies around. Um, and intuitive eating says, yes, we can trust our bodies. And the way to do that is to start understanding the binge and restrict cycle that I think most of us are somewhat familiar with. This idea that if we make certain foods off limits and say no or limit how much we can have of it, it sets up this like desire to have that thing. Like if I say right now, don't think of a purple dinosaur. Mm-hmm. You're gonna think of a purple dinosaur, yes. <laughs> and And so, so when we restrict certain foods from ourselves, it sets us up for a binge. And intuitive eating goes a little further and it says that restricting is not just the actual restricting of the food, but it's in moralizing food at all and saying that some okay. foods are good, some foods are bad, some foods are healthy, some foods are unhealthy. That that also sets up that restrict binge cycle, even if we're like, quote, you know, cheating I mean, that's a, that language is restrictive. Yeah. I'm going to cheat and I cheated on my diet or today's a cheat day or I'm going to go crazy because it's my, so these, when we, we know we have a restrictive mindset around food, when we don't give ourselves 100% permission to eat whatever we want, whenever we want and start getting reconnected to what our body actually likes what feels good <laughs> and yeah and, and when we give ourselves unconditional permission to eat we might swing out here for a while into like you know i call it the effort diet like we swing okay. over here when we give ourselves unconditional permission to eat because all the foods that we've restricted for so long we might need to kind of eat a lot of those for a while until our bodies go oh we we can eat these whenever we want we really can like it's not something like we can choose to have that for breakfast if i want to i i don't have to like eat a bunch of it right now because she's going to take it away from me later and so we develop this yeah. trust with our bodies where bodies don't have to like get it when it can um and that does go away um intuitive eating says that over some time your body will, will learn to trust that you can that you will give it what it wants and what it's asking for when it's possible as much as you can and that you're not going to shame it. You're not going to beat it up for eating that food. That's another form of restriction is when we, when we give ourselves permission to eat it, but then the next day we're, we're beating ourselves up for it or yes. running seven miles to like compensate. So these are all how we need, we think restriction is one thing, but it's a wider lens. It is, it is. And so intuitive eating kind of helps us to look at those words and look at those influences and how it's actually impacted us negatively. I almost feel like it kind of falls into, um, like that forbidden fruit theory. Yeah, like absolutely. once you say you can't have it, like you said with the purple dinosaur, like you want it, you want it more. So intuitive eating kind of 
teaches you to trust your body more. Yeah. How to does demoralize, no, to tend to demoralize food, to take away that some foods are good or bad, that in and of itself sets us up for a binge response. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm thinking of like when I'm thinking of this approach and especially with intuitive eating, I feel like, and if we have younger clients that are with yeah. us, I feel like yeah. there's probably a lot of parent education that goes into this because sure. I think some parents would be like, no, my child can't eat everything. So I yeah. feel like it's almost like you kind of need family counseling if, especially if you're working with younger patients. Absolutely. You, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is such a hard, hard spot because when you're bringing, if you have younger clients, children, adolescents coming into your practice um, <clears throat> and they have an eating disorder or the parents are concerned about their bodies or their health or whatever is the issue, typically what you, it does become a family issue. Depending on the age of the client, I will still work with teenagers about, you know, um, learning how to understand all the things we've been talking about and practicing in this in their own lives. But because of the parents, what they've been taught by diet culture, the indoctrination that they've been, they, that they have around it, they may still be acting in a very controlled way over their kids' food or making comments mm -hmm. or saying things that they don't think are harmful, but supposed to be helpful. Um, nudging them towards healthy foods or, you know, doing some policing or hovering or, you know, mentioning, should you be eating that? It's only four o'clock or, you know, these kind of comments that are supposed to be helpful, but are actually counterindicated in this approach um, and can kind of set up that restrict, you know, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I can't eat that and my mom's going to be mad at me. And, and so working with the, with the you know, kids' issues are really issues, not always. I mean, kids get these messages from culture, from their daycares, from school, from yeah. Reddit, from everywhere. <laughs> like, it's, we, like, I don't want to blame and shame parents. A lot of parents feel like, what did I do? I failed my kid. I'm like, yeah. no, they live in this culture. You, you could have, like, done everything right and right and still have a kid who's impacted by diet culture. Um, so... But we do have to educate the parents around thinking about how they're talking about foods, mm -hmm. working with them to like uh, to teach a kid how to really honor their own hunger cues, and to you know for them to speak up when they're hungry and have access to the foods that feel good. And I have my own history with this because I have a child; he's 15 now, and I was very restrictive with him around food, um, and you know doing all the things about healthy eating and <laughs> all these things. And so um, when I started looking at, and he used to steal bags of chips um, from our kitchen, those little snack bags, and I would find yeah. them and like crammed them big back between his bed and the wall. And this was a perfect example of that binge restrict, uh, you know, phenomenon showing up in my son. Um, and so what I, through my Be Nourished training, through Body Trust, I, and through other leaders out there who are talking about how to raise competent eaters, how to raise children who have a sense of competency with food, um, is that we can, one of the ways to kind of interrupt this is to make all of their like shame foods or secret foods or foods that you've been like restricting and policing, um, make those really available for a time. And, and let them have access to that whenever they want an event. And they might go crazy on it again for a while, but mm -hmm. they'll swing back to, oh, that's not like a, such a special food. I mean, like 
apples aren't that special, so they don't crave apples, maybe, um, but they might crave these other items because they're not, on a, they're not in a basket on the table made available all the time. So with my own son, I went and bought bags and bags and bags of Doritos, and I would have like six or seven bags of Doritos on our shelves available for him, and I told him he could have those whenever he felt hungry. And he did go. I mean, he was like walking around with a bag of Doritos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now Doritos can last on our shelves for, we have, sometimes have to throw them away because they go stale. Um, so this is how this shifts. And he actually, through that whole process, he's, his whole palate has increased. And I think that might be just part of age, but, you know, yeah. old school. But he, he came home the other day and he had made himself a Caesar salad. A chicken Caesar salad. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. My own experience of, of being super anxious around this and getting all the training that all parents get and then having the anxiety of like trusting this process and being like, oh my God, my kid is only going to eat Doritos forever. And, yeah. and then real, and then having this, this really lovely outcome. What are some of the other outcomes that you can see within kids? Like, you know, you said specifically with yours, you saw him starting to kind of expand his own palate. You, you know, you're not sure if it was, you know, not restricting foods anymore or it could be developmental, you know, but what are some other things that people have to gain by following this approach? That's a beautiful question. You know, I think the biggest thing that, I mean, so when people, when I, when I have new clients come in, um, when I've, what I've learned is that, you know, I can't guarantee that they're going to lose weight. Some people do, um, when they start like responding to internal cues and addressing the fat shame and the weight stigma, they, they, their body was, their, their set point was at a lower weight. And so that becomes more normalized when they stop binging and restricting. Um, and so some people lose weight, some people don't, some people gain weight. In my experience, I did gain weight through the whole process. Um, and some people stay about the same. So that's not an outcome that we can guarantee and letting go of that outcome and coming to a place of like weight neutrality as the goal mm -hmm. that I'm not connected to the outcome of gaining or losing weight. I'm way more interested in having some freedom and some ease and less shame and a sense of um, worthiness that's not connected to the size, shape, appearance of my body. Um, I, don't, I don't worry about food anymore. People don't get obsessed with it. They, have, they can just eat when they want, when they want. There is not this like, you know, the, the, the patterns, the repeated patterns of counting and obsessions with food. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a place of ease and relaxation that people have, some people have never had ever in their lives around their relationship with food. Food is so terrifying and scary and overwhelming and tricky and exhausting and miserable for so many people. And that is the opposite of what food should be. Food mm -hmm. is a place where so much pleasure and connection and community. Food is a way that we connect with other people. Food is sensual. Food is supposed to be fun. It's not just fuel as the yeah. diet culture likes to say, when we strip it down to just fuel, it loses all of its soul. Um, so an easy, peaceful relationship with food and then a, a, a relationship with our bodies where we're not um, trying to control our bodies, punish our bodies, do, to, do things to our bodies, but we're doing life with our bodies and we're doing things for our bodies. 
And so we come into a place of compassion, of, of, of self-acceptance, of resilience, because I, you know, being a person in a fat body, I do experience fat shaming. Um, and I don't have access to certain things like going to the doctor. I, because I'm in a certain weight, certain surgeries aren't available to me and certain healthcare options aren't available to me. Um, there's so many ways where fat shaming and weight stigma show up mm -hmm. that are, but I don't, I'm not, I don't consider myself to be the problem anymore. I am yeah. not at that, not at myself. And I see this is the problem. Like it is totally bonkers and, and ridiculous that those things aren't available to higher weight people. Like, um, so no longer having a sense of personal responsibility yeah. and shame. These are the and things. I think, yeah, I feel like when you it's like when you're able to let go of that, something that could probably be so consuming um, day in and day out, I feel like that can open clients up to access more in their day-to-day -day lives. Like having the food just kind of be background noise and it's yeah. something to be enjoyed and pleasurable probably yeah. opens them up to explore other interests, uh, frees yes. them up mentally for other things. Oh my gosh, so much creative energy, so much relational energy. Yeah. There are, there's so many opuses and um, like ideas that have never been impl implemented because we're worried about how much kale we're eating um, yeah. and whether or not we did our steps this week. I mean, it's, it's a really good way. I mean, diet culture especially has been a really powerful way to keep people um, obsessed with something other than the systems of power. Um, and diets have this trend. Christy Harrison, um, in her book, Di Anti-Diet, talks about how there's this, there's this correlation with women's movements and social justice movements and new diet programs <laughs> and new research coming out, and new okay. like, policy attempts to control bodies and to create fear about health as a way to kind of distract us from from like smashing these systems of oppression yes. and addressing the body politics that are going on. Um, and Christie says that diet culture is a life thief. And I 100% agree with that. Yeah. We are not living our lives because of, because diet culture has absolutely stolen them away. Stolen time. And like you had said before, stolen, um, relationships, stolen like events, like, yes. like you were saying, baby showers, weddings, like stolen a lot. And it's how much sex isn't happening. Uh, how yeah. many bathing suits aren't being worn, mm -hmm. how many jobs aren't being gone for because they would never hire me because I'm fat, which actually does happen. Um, so there's, there's a lot of unlife lived out there unlived yes. life out there. Unlived life. Yes, absolutely. And you've also talked about health at every size, the mm -hmm. H-A-E-S approach. How is that similar or different than intuitive eating? Another great question. And these two things often go very much hand in hand. Um, and of, of course, if from the body trust approach that Be Nourished um, has created, those things are all underneath the body trust umbrella. But body trust or health at every size or haze, as it's called, like in the vernacular out there. Okay. And I'm not an expert in defining these things, but you can absolutely look up health at every size. Um, but it's a set of, um, of principles that um, that are supporting help advance like social justice um, there. It's a set of it's like a, it's actually like a social justice movement, really about okay. body inclusivity, about supporting people in all sizes um, and finding compassionate 
ways to take care of themselves. Um, it's a way of looking at um, how bodies are diverse and they've come in all different sizes and shapes for so long and that every body is worthy of care, of access to health, of health care, um, that everybody deserves dignity, everybody deserves respect. And so not just around size, um, but that's their, that's their primary like platform for creating policy, for pushing movements, for addressing the systems in terms of public health. Like how do we as a community address how public health policy is impacting people in large bodies? And so Health at Every Size is a movement and a set of principles that direct that advocacy. Um, and see. it's not this idea, I think there's a lot of confusion around like, I think people hear health at every size and they say healthy at every size. And I'm, I, I used to, I, that's what I used to think it was too. And I actually had somebody correct me and say, it's not healthy at every size. Um, because it's, I, there's, there's this idea that, that health at every size is about getting healthy. And that's actually kind of a misunderstanding, easily misunderstood, but it's really looking at who has access to health. What body okay. are getting access to health and how do we even out that playing field and how do we address how weight stigma is a massive contributor to people not being able to have access to health, how weight stigma impacts income, how it impacts how much trauma is happening to kids in school and how what mm -hmm. impacts that's having on their health out down the line. I mean, if you think like an ACEs model you know, with adverse childhood experiences, kids in large bodies are experiencing severe trauma every day in their school settings. And this goes on and on and on. So the trauma impacts and the health outcomes from that. And so weight discrimination and stigma are big, um, are big driving force in the work that Hayes professionals are doing to decrease weight stigma so that people have better access to health. To health. And mm -hmm. I like that you put that differentiation there between health and healthy because yeah. it is two very distinct kind of concepts yes. there. It's like access to health yes. and not just about being healthy at every right. size. It's the right. access that is restricted. And there is this idea too that all bodies, large and small, can be healthy. And there's actually some pretty fun, interesting research that can kind of confuse us all that shows that people who are in larger bodies actually do have more health, greater outcomes in terms of longevity. So, I mean, it does also address this idea that being in a large body automatically means you're unhealthy. And of course, so, we can't ever know anybody's health outcomes by looking at them. Exactly. So it sounds like the health at every size kind of also gives you the other side of the research. And it's not to say that people in large bodies are at so much more risk for these things, but it kind of allows you to kind of look at the research in a different way and yeah, seeing why? that. Yeah. Why are, why are people in large bodies having um, more health problems? Is it because of the weight or, or is it because of weight stigma? Is it because mm -hmm. of all the, the weight cycling? I mean, the damage that we do by going up and down that weight cycle is, is, is horrible. Um, and how that impacts our metabolism and how that impacts heart health. Um, and so when we, when we really dive into the research and the research is so biased anyway, and so yeah. it's really complicated when we get to this, but what we have to realize is that humans are really 
food, food science, nutritional science, and human behavior <laughs> are really hard to study around this because you and I could eat the same food for five years, the exact same food for five mm -hmm. years, and do the exact same form of movement for five years. But you may have a marriage that is super nurturing and supportive. I may go through a divorce during that time. I might lose a child. And how does that impact my yeah. weight and my metabolism and, my, and the amounts of adrenaline and cortisol in my body? I might have a great amount of financial distress and you may have a lot of financial support. And so how much is the trauma and the experience of being financially oppressed impacting our, our weight and, and yeah. our bodies? Um, this is why when we look at, you know, intersections of identity, what works for one person doesn't, I mean, so we're really, it's really hard to study this yeah. and to actually know what's contributing to what. Um, but we always, always, always blame the weight. It's like yeah. such easy, boring, lazy science. <laughs> and lazy it is, it is. And I think for the first time, like for me, it's, it's kind of looking at it as it's not causation. There yes. might be a correlation because of yes. these other factors that influence. Yeah. We can't, you know, we can't get rid of all the variables health. to study this well enough. Exactly. And we can study That's this on point. mice, but mice don't have, you know, two kids and a mortgage. No, <laughs> exactly. They don't have any financial stress or, or anything like that. Absolutely. Right. Right. That's a really, really excellent, excellent point. Like my mind is like, spinning and you're, Yay! um, I'm learning so much right now. So, Yay! so much. <laughs> so I'm hoping your listeners are too. One thing that like kind of keeps echoing in my mind is I'm thinking of, um, individuals who have either anorexia or bulimia, right? It's not my specialty, but you know, I, I have some familiarity with it. And I just recall being in grad school and you know, they would put kids into you know, these, these programs. Yeah. And I remember it's it really being calorie focused, yes. like on these kids who have anorexia or bulimia, like being able to consume 2000 calories a day. And like, that was like their goals and their focus. And when I hear you talk about intuitive eating, I feel like that's a big mm. part of what's lacking in our treatment of eating disorders. Is that accurate? Yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, weight stigma, fat phobia um, is rampant in mm -hmm. across psychology counseling period. And it's also very, very present in the eating disorder community, um, which is really disappointing to say yeah. um, and kind of heartbreaking. But, at the re I'm, and, but I need to say that um, because so many folks in, in eating disorder recovery treatment centers who are providing treatment haven't really interrogated all this stuff um, because it's so uncomfortable. It's so, so uncomfortable to do this. And what it, it really has to, we can't do this work without looking at our own body stories and our own trauma. Yeah. So it's just, it's hard to do this work. And I, I understand why. There are some treatment centers who are using a health at every size intuitive eating approach. There's several up here in the Seattle area that do. And I think this, I'm hoping that this is shifting um, and treating folks with eating disorders such as anorexia where there are 
you know, um, some really big metabolic, you know, um, organ issue. Like there's, yeah. there's a medical component that gets introduced at this point um, where, where there might need to be some more structured, um, and I'm not a dietitian, and I always yeah. refer to dietitians about this. But at the end of the, and what what eating disorder treatment often does is they have like treatments for binge eaters, and they have treatment for anorexics. Um, and another problem, and which which is not really addressed, like at the heart of both of these disorders is fat phobia. It's fear yeah. of gain. It's I don't want to be fat. And in binge eaters, it's how we define binge eating. It's um, that they're not good at at doing what anorexics do. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, right? And so yeah. they, they do things like, they do bad things like emotionally eat. And this idea that emotional eating is not okay is another um, like thing that we need to really interrogate. Of we course, emotional, we need to emotionally eat. Um, and so, and a lot of an, another kind of area that's problematic in eating disorder treatment is this idea of, um, you know, there are weight requirements for anorexia. Yeah. And so yes. but I can't tell you how many people are very anorexic, but they are in larger bodies. A lot of the clients that I've treated over since I've been doing this work are in large bodies and they're getting not enough, they're, they're getting under 500 calories a day. Um, and they're at really big risk for organ failure for serious health issues, but they don't meet that underweight requirement. Um, and okay. so insurance won't pay for them to be in treatment. And so these are really at-risk folks, and it's another way that people in larger bodies are being discriminated against, even in our own profession. Yeah, and that's another thing where you're, you're talking about, like access to health. Yes. You could be anorexic, but if you're in a larger body, you are being denied that access yeah, you're considered to an atypical healthcare. anorexic, and a lot of insurance programs won't won't treat that, won't pay for it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, over the past hour that we've been talking, there's so many things that have just completely um, changed my mind, and really are some things that I want to dive into more, which I'm sure our listeners are wanting to learn more yes. as well. Can you give us some resources, talk about some resources, and I'll post them on our website? Sure. Um, yeah. So I've mentioned the Food Psych podcast. There's another mm -hmm. podcast called um, uh, The Maintenance Phase, which is really great. Books that I highly recommend, um, Fearing the Black Body. Um, a great book is called The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee, Sonia Renee Taylor. Fantastic book. I've mentioned Christy Harrison's book, Anti-Diet, which is new. Um, it's, I, I like Christy's work. Um, what else comes to mind? Um, and then I, what I really encourage people to do, and this is one way that we can all, and this, it feels small, but it's so important, is to start following fat people and on social media. So okay. just start curating your Instagram feeds, social media feeds, TikTok feeds, so that we're getting used to seeing fat bodies in, the, in culture and not in the way where it's like before and after photos, yeah. but seeing yeah. fat people kind of in the wild and living life. Mm -hmm. Because part of the reason, one way that fat phobia and weight anti-fat bias continues is because we don't see fat people in on TV, we don't. They're not lead characters. They're not 
and you know we don't see them except for to talk about how bad and gross they are so yeah. one way that we can start combating our own anti-fat bias is to you know put more representation into our into our experiences every day and to notice you know any of the anti-fat you know unconscious bias that rises in us because we know that one the one way you know that we like one of the things that uh, research has shown us is that, that that what we're attracted to and what we feel comfortable and feel good with is what we're exposed to what's familiar so because we're not represented in culture and in the media that's one way that weight stigma sticks around so get more familiar with seeing fat people in that are naked who are in bikinis yeah. who are making love who are just doing life and that exposure over time will help you um, deal with your own unconscious bias that has been um, has developed in you, not at any fault of your own, but it is our responsibility to unravel that. I love that. And I feel like that is like something I hope all of our listeners do, because I think it, it's a very easy thing that you can start to, to yeah. kind of be, you know, to help us break the stigma around diet culture and to also help us better treat our patients. So it's good for us both yeah. personally, professionally, and for our clients. Yeah. Yeah. All right, good. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. Is there any final thoughts you want to give our listeners before we sign off? Um, just that I appreciate y'all listening to this. I know this feels like it might not be something that is impacting you directly, but weight stigma impacts all of us, not mm -hmm. just people who are fat and in large bodies. Um, and so, so I, I know there's a lot of things in the past couple of years that a lot of us have been waking up to in terms yeah. of body politics and social harm and, or, you know, the, the impacts of these uh, institutions and systems of harm. And this is just another one to put on your radar and start um, interrogating and, and giving yourself compassion for what you don't know, but staying in, stay in it, stay in there. Yeah. And I think this, this show is my hope is that we kind of start as all these other areas, like you've said, we've kind of been become woke too. Yeah. you know, this is yeah. another one that we need yeah. to, to kind of expose ourselves to and to dive in and to critique and try to look at it from a different perspective. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I'll yeah. have the resources that we talked about in our show link and stay tuned to the end of the podcast to learn how you can obtain continuing education credits for listening. And we'll see you next time for episode 21. If you listen to our podcast and you would like to obtain continuing education credit hours, please check out our website at therapeuticperspective.com to see if your state is eligible to receive NBCC continuing education credit hours. If your state does, you will need to go to therapeuticperspective.com and click on the show that you just listened to. From there, you will see three links to three online documents to complete. These include an attestation, quiz, and evaluation. Once we receive these documents and the continuing education credit hour fee set through our PayPal link on our website, we will send you your certificate of completion via email. If you need any help or support in the process, please email us at therapeuticperspectivepodcast at gmail.com.